Some women impersonate Sex in the City's Carrie Bradshaw with vast closets full of fantastic clothing. Even Sarah Jessica Parker pretends to be Carrie Bradshaw when she walks the red carpet. However, there is one woman in New York City who, if he knew her, would have been Darren Starr's real muse. Let me introduce you to Susan S. Warner, the adorable petite blonde who at 59 lost her handsome, extraordinary husband to cancer six months after her wonderful 32-year-old son died by suicide. It's now four years later. After the most challenging days and nights, Susan decided to live her best life possible. And just like that, Susan was suddenly single. Carrie may have Susan beat on exposure, but Susan has Carrie beat on life's experiences. Listen in. Ever since Susan Warner started her own podcast, Susan is Suddenly Single, 27 episodes ago, she has been receiving fan mail from people who lost spouses, children, parents, best friends, etc. They all thank her for her wisdom, spirit, and honesty. It was very comforting for them to know that they're not alone. Her words give them the confidence to understand there are better days ahead. As Susan gets ready to release her book, Never Say Never, Never Say Always, in the fall, she is continually thinking about those who are still suffering from grief. Her hope is that her book will help people rethink what they really want for themselves and develop tools to get there. Susan, thank you. Those are great words. What do you personally 27 podcasts. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I I know. Well, you know what? And it feels like we did too. So anyway. Correct. uh, Here we go. uh, Because they're all, they were, every single one of them was rewarding. So that's why that number is so meaningful. What do you personally say to people who just lost a loved one? You know, everybody's circumstance is individual. And I think that's really important to recognize. It's individual in the universal scope of loss. So um, I just stumbled on someone recently who's in my life who just lost a surrogate mother. And she was extremely upset. And we were sitting and talking. And I said, how old was she? 89. Was she ill? Yes. And I said, you know, this is the circle of life. This is how it's supposed to happen. Older people get sick and die. Young people are born and take their place. So I think my advice to people really varies on their circumstance. When a child dies, I have no answers. I'm not that person. I have advice on how to get through it, but I have no answers. So when someone you love dies, and and I write often in cards or, or memos to people, Try to turn the stories into, into a smile to make you appreciate and love the stories you can tell about them and not make you cry. Remember them in all the happiness, all the good times, all the love, and think of it in a positive note instead of the sadness that they're not here. So that's my overall, my overarching advice to people who have just lost someone. Remember the stories with a smile. Tell the stories. And smiling can be with tears. It's okay. Remember it with a smile and all the good times and all the positive things that this person gave to you and not the negative of their not being here. Because if you get lost in that, you lose all the goodness and all the influence they had on you. And I think that that would be bringing way too much negativity into a negative situation. I think that was very powerful. And I think that that will resonate with a lot of people. 
And I love what you said. It makes me feel so much better. You say you could give some advice, but you don't have the answers. I think I that's amazing. I don't. I think that's amazing. Uh, but that's the think, truth. And I think our listeners will really appreciate that. Uh, Susan, I hate to ask you this, but do you relive your loss often? Can you define often? It's often every day. It's often once a week. It's often once a month. Yes, I do. I feel that by David and Michael moving forward with me, which is a major point of how I um, balance recovery, that I think about them and then what's happened uh, pretty frequently. But again, I, I think of them with a smile. I think of them with a twinkle, a glimmer, um, a joke, something that David would have done or, or a comment Michael would make or seeing, you know, the handsome figure he cut in his all black that he wore every day walking down 90th Street towards the dog and I waiting for him. All those things bring me warmth and joy. So if that's reliving, do I relive the grief? I try not to. Do I relive the memories and the beauty? I try to. So I would say, carry them on my shoulder. They are, I am who I am because of them. They helped mold me. So I try not to relive the pain. You know, I, I've commented, and it's in the book, that I'm good about 365 days a year, but those five days when I completely fall apart, I completely fall apart. So that's how I structure this. Stay positive, stay in it, stay happy, stay joyous. Those 365 days a year, 360 days a year, but give yourself those five days. So that's my answer. Hmm. It's wonderful that you're able to do that. And I it hope, takes work. Yeah. <laughs> it's work. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. You know, I've often said that when, when I find myself, I have a situation I need to go someplace on Thursday. And the round trip ride in a day would take me six hours. When I'm alone in a car is one of my most vulnerable times. I tend to let my mind go. No matter if I listen to a podcast or listen to music, I let my mind go places I shouldn't go. So you know what? I'm going to take the jitney and do work on the bus to New York and then hop up to Westchester instead of putting myself in a six-hour situation where I think could be dangerous for me. Mm. I try to avoid things that I know can be stumbling blocks and things that put me in uncomfortable situations and build on the things that put me in a better place. And once you can recognize those and you know what your triggers are and, and you know where you're vulnerable, avoid them. You don't have to go there. It does, it's, it, for me, it's counterproductive. So I'm going to take the jitney, work, listen to music, do you know, my, my um, spelling bee on the New York Times, and you know, get into New York and do what I have to do. Much better scenario for me. And I, I always think that people should do what's healthy for them, not what they think is right or what's expected or what other people deem the right thing to do. Do what works for you and avoid the things that you know are going to cause you problems. I hope that's very helpful to people because it, uh, it really, you just really gave them an answer, you know, to. Yeah, it, it's really, and I really practice that. I do. Is loss the most frightening part of a person's life? I'm going to say yes, because I fortunately haven't had been in a place of being on the other side, of being, you know, chronically ill. So is that more frightening than losing? I don't know the answer to that, and I hope I don't for decades and decades. So the only thing that I can think of that would be more frightening than losing someone is losing. 
Mike and I had the most endearing comment. He traveled so much. And we always said to each other, the person that stays home misses the person that goes away more. And we would say it every time he traveled, which was thousands of times, because the person that goes away has the adventure. The person that stays home is locked in the loss of that person on a day-to-day basis. So the person that goes away, you know, the person that stays home misses the person that goes away more. So if you ask me to live by my adage, yes, it's the most frightening. But as I said, I've not been on the other side of going to the other side. And I hope not to be for a very long time. Right. So I can't definitively answer that for you. I don't know if it, which one is worse. Well, I was thinking about, you know, there are a lot of people that had great losses. But yet, I don't know if they would say this out loud, but if they lost all their money or they oh, I their, their face got damaged, you know, and they weren't the most gorgeous person or they gained I tons see. of weight. No, no, no. Well, so I took that just... way more existentially. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. Which, yeah, which I'm glad you did because that's the answer that needs for this podcast. But now that yeah. I asked you I mean, this other version of is it. Is it more frightening than financial loss or ruin? Is it more frightening than, yeah, physical harm? I would say yes because, you know, I, I often commented, I, I had this feeling when my mom died when I was a teenager, that I realized that death was the only thing you couldn't barter back, buy back, cajole back. There was no way to make this change. When someone died, it was definitive. So I think that you can lose money and make money again. I think that if you have physical harm, you can um, repair it. Death is finite. So I'm going to go with yes. Loss is the most frightening. That's another good explanation. How devastating is the loneliness? Loneliness is so dark. I'm a visual thinker. We've talked about this before. So I think of things when I think of thoughts. So loneliness is the deepest hole, the darkest black that I can, I can explain. It's, it's that hole in your heart that won't heal. It will never close. Or at least you think it will never close at the time. The only hole I think that never closes is the loss of a child. I don't think that hole ever closes. I think they rip a piece of your heart off and it stays jagged like that forever. Mm -hmm. Nothing Mm -hmm. will replace that. I think with a spouse, it closes and you find other loves and you replace it. You still care, but but it's closable. And I think with all those other losses that you talked about, they're closable. But loneliness is so dark and so deep. And people need to be so aware of it when they deal with people who have lost. And again, that loss could be divorce or death. It doesn't have to just be death. To be conscious that the weekends are horrible and Sundays are so lonely. And when you know that someone is 10 blocks away from you and you're having a family dinner on a Sunday night, invite them. They want to be around people. They want to be alive. And when you're doing whatever you do on a daily basis and they have a hole in their schedule, ask them. They can say no, but they can probably relish the the reach out. Right. So I would say that loneliness is pretty bad. Hmm. Pretty devastating. Yeah, that's a big fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I'm very curious about, can a, don't you think that a person could get sick after suffering a difficult loss because they're so devastated? That's a really debatable question amongst doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists and and people who study behavior, that if you, can you make yourself sick? 
if, if cancer is something that exists in our bodies and it could exist for 20 years before it rears its ugly head, can devastating loss or anything of devastation encourage it? If you're asking me personally, does Susan think that? Yes, I do. I think that Michael's loss was so painful. And yes, I'm sure the cancer was not triggered by his loss, but was it encouraged? Maybe. Maybe, you know, in my mind, and I, I am a spiritual person and I discuss my spirituality throughout the book, that I think that Michael needed to go to his son in some level, that he knew Elizabeth and I would care for each other. And one of my friends said, I can't believe you think that. That's so selfless. Maybe it is, but maybe I understand the love a parent has for their child. And spiritually, he needed to go to him to care for him. Mm-hmm. So I think that there could be a correlation between illness and loss or illness and loneliness. And I think you see that with the elderly as well. And I think you see people dying of a broken heart. You know, when an 86 year old man loses his 82 year old wife and dies two months later, I think he dies of a broken heart. Right. I just think you give up your will to live. And I think the mind is so powerful over the body and through illness that yes, I think there is a component that the mind can be stronger than the body. Do you have any recommendations to people how to avoid that, even though they're like really suffering? I think the only way you can avoid that, and that's a great question though, if it's really making me stop in my tracks, is by trying to bring out the positive in your own life. Once a person makes the determination, I want to live, then live. Say it out loud. When you say something out loud, you own it more readily in your brain than when you just think it say out loud i want to live so if i want to live i want to live well i think that i think we can make that assumption right i don't think people mm-hmm. want to live poorly so make the statement out loud say i want to live i'm going to push through this and and as i've discussed in the past the mental mechanisms walk it out talk it out think it out that um walk it out means like exercise like make your body better stay stronger be a better version of you i think my best revenge in the death of my mother and David and, and Michael is to be a better version of me. And I don't mean it revenge against anyone, but against the world. Mm-hmm. When people say, is there fairness? No, there's no fairness. We don't work that way. There's no scorecard. There's no person checking off numbers. So if I've got to have revenge against a, a force of unknown spirituality, my best revenge is to live my best life. So I, I encourage people who have lost, who are lonely, who are in despair, when you decide you want to live, say it out loud and live your best life as your best revenge. Boy, am I going to send this podcast out to a lot of people. You know? <laughs> I and, hope, and, and mostly I to myself can. because I will hold it in a special place. Because, Thank you. Because, you know, it's uh, for a lot of us that, you know, grew up with negativity or darkness or whatever, you know, it's mm-hmm. not so easy uh, to... It's not. It's not yeah. easy. And that's something I feel very strongly about, and I've mentioned before. None of this is easy, and every day is not good for me, and I don't go skipping down the road every day saying, you know, happy to be alive. Some days are darker than others. Some days are are wrestling days. I wrestle with what I feel. I wrestle with the past. I wrestle with my loss. I wrestle with my future. Although I do spend most of my time trying to live for today, meaning today, tomorrow, next month, next year. I, I expected to walk into the sunset with Michael, and that didn't happen. I expected mm-hmm. to see David's children. It didn't happen. So I think that it's best 
to just look at the positive, to try to live your best revenge. But what work do you on mean, it. What it's, do you mean by that? Try to live your best revenge. Live your best life. <clears throat> go, go, go for the gusto. Say, you know what? I'm not going to let this get to me. I'm going to live my best life because my best life is my best version of me. And who doesn't want to be their best version of themselves? Mm-hmm. I think we all do. It's how hard you want to work at it. And it's, it's a, that journey of work is hard, yes. Sometimes a little painful, yes, but mostly joyous. Accomplishment, things that you were on your bucket list, things that you didn't think you could do and now you can handle, from the most mundane of fixing the ice maker in the refrigerator to the most complex of managing your finances or finding a new love. It's all worth the work and the journey is terrific. And the reward is sensational. What do you say to people that say, I'm just not ready? What does ready mean? I think that would be the, if someone said that to me, I think my first answer would be, and not to be nasty, what's ready? I don't know how to define that. I don't know. Does ready come knocking at your door? Is ready a letter you get in the mail or an email you get? Okay, Susan, you're ready now. It's not. It's all your, it's all your headspace. It's all your state of mind. So if you're not ready, that's on you. Make yourself ready. You know, I'm not ready to go out to dinner. I'm going to go get dressed. I'm not ready to get better. Well, then pick up the tools to learn to get better. Mm-hmm. It's, you, as I, you know, again, as I've said, you don't find happiness. You make it. Happiness isn't lying on the street and I'm going to pick it up today and say, oh, I found happiness. Put it in my handbag and walk away. I may make my happiness. Make it. Get ready. There's no such thing as I'm not ready unless you don't want to be ready. If you don't want to go out to dinner that night and you're laying in your bed watching Netflix, then you don't want to go. Right. But if you want to get better, then get ready. So then what do you say to folks? What do you say to folks who tell you they're still miserable after a few years? You know, Lois, in our lives, we've met people who enjoy being miserable. There are people that like misery. I'm certainly not one of them, but there are people that do. Um, again, it's all about what you want out of life. I go back to the question, do you want to feel good? Do you want to make a better life? Then say it out loud. I want to live. I want to be happier and go after it. Use the mental mechanisms of psychology. I'm ready to put it forward. I'm saying to the world, I want to be better. I want to do things I didn't do. I want to do what's on my bucket list. I want to do things that make me happy as long as they don't hurt anybody. So if you really, if you can tell me I, I, I'm still miserable, I can't get past it, then let's work on the tools to get you past it and you accept them or reject them. Let's work on the tools to live happier, you accept it or reject it. Falls in your court. Do you think that someone would get really upset with you after you told them, oh, you want to be miserable, so you're not getting better? I wouldn't say that to anybody, honestly. I'm saying that to you. I would never say to someone, you enjoy misery. I wouldn't. Well, they're going to hear it on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's not a one-on-one. I think that's cruel. Mm-hmm. Right. I would not say that, but I would say to them, do you want to live? And do you want to live well? So if the answer to those questions is yes, then let's work on that. Let's get the tools in your toolbox that will help you live a better life and, and pull out of your misery. Like, pull out of those things that drag you down. And that's all the things from the walk in the park to the riding horses to exercising to traveling to reading a a new job. 
um, a new hobby, any of those things can make you feel good. Then let's do the things that make you feel good. I would not say to anybody, you enjoy misery. I, I'm not that person. Mm-hmm. I can say it on a big, you know, hypothetical, but I would never say that to anybody. Do you ever like give advice, say one thing, and then really think another? And you're just no. hoping. You know, no, just hoping I'm that... true to myself. No, no, I'm true to myself. If I if I say it, then I believe it. I don't. I, I'm not here to um, line coffers, you know, on a sermon. I'm not passing around a basket that if I say the right thing, you'll, you know, put a dollar in. No, I, I say what I believe. I say what I've learned, what has helped me, what I think will help other people. And I know it has. I get the texts. I get the emails. I get the instant messages. I did, you know, I thought I was alone in this. I didn't know other people felt this way. This is inspirational. You know, you know, I, I, lost someone to suicide. I see what you're saying about it's selfless. So what I say, I believe. I, I do not say things to talk. Is it okay to grieve forever? The forward to my book is written by an angel, Dr. Sean Morrison, head of palliative care for Mount Sinai Hospital. And Dr. Morrison claims we do grieve forever. And this is, he's the expert. We do grieve, but we grieve in different ways, and grief changes. So someone once said to me very wisely when my mother died that it's not that you grieve or feel less. It's just the time between the grief becomes longer and longer. So instead of beating your chest every 10 minutes to every 10 days to every 10 weeks, mm-hmm. it becomes a longer time before when the grief claws at you. So I think, yes, I think we grieve forever. If you want those people to stay with you, like I do, and stay, move forward and stay on my shoulder, then, then yes, I grieve forever. But I, I think I grieve in a healthier way. I miss them. You know, I wrote to someone recently that it was Michael's birthday, and they said, you know, I miss Mikey, my sister, my Angie. And I said, I miss him. It's okay to say that. I miss him. I miss David. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That's grieving. But it, I think it's a a more rational, healthier grieving that I can live with and move forward with. So, yes, I think we grieve forever. Wow. So then the next natural question would be, are there predetermined factors that figure into how somebody mourns? I think it's sociological. And I think that's proven with anthropologists. Different societies grieve differently. I think there's a European society, it might be Italian, where the widow wore black for the rest of her life, right? That's a really stark reminder of what state of life you're in, and that colors your mood if everyone's always treating you like a widow. When I took Elizabeth to Paris after Michael died in March and in June for Father's Day, we went to Paris so that we could leave the American culture of Father's Day. I remember being the first time that I felt whole. No one cocked their head when they looked at me. No one knew my story. Everybody treated me normally. So I think a lot of it is by social norms, social cues, and then the the subset society that you live in, be it cultural, religious, etc. So there are predetermined factors. You know, we, as a Jew, I sat Shiva. I had 30 days of mourning. I had a year of mourning. I didn't understand why people couldn't go to a bar mitzvah or a wedding while they were in mourning for the first year until it happened to me. I couldn't go. I'd say yes, and I'd call and say, I can't do it. I don't know why I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I, I wanted to vomit. Mm. So that is the, the predetermined is that is that my own psyche? Is that what I've learned from my Jewish roots? I don't know. I don't know. But um, it definitely 
it's societal, cultural, more than anything else, I believe. Does guilt play into the mourning process? Guilt is such a heavy, misguided emotion. Does it play into the mourning process? Hmm. Um, I never felt guilt in mourning. I never felt, why them, not me? I never felt I should have done something else. People do, though. And I've talked to some of my friends who are widows and widowers who feel very guilty that I could have done more. And the irony is it's usually the person that's done above and beyond what, what superhuman people do. I could have done more. Right. So yes, I'm sure for some people guilt does play into the mourning process. Not for me. Guilt's an emotion that I don't, I don't, I never felt with guilt dating or sexually or in death. Guilt, guilt to me is a really wasted emotion. Guilt and envy, two emotions that take up brain space that you shouldn't waste. Hmm. Huh. I wish there was medicine for that. Hmm. <laughs> is, it, is it common for someone to be in the depths of despair and then snap out of it, you know, or the other way around? That they're okay and then they go down deep? I mean, it does happen, I know. It's my opinion that you don't snap out of it, you grow out of it. I don't know people that all of a sudden they have an epiphany. Possibly that happens maybe with a change of um, environment, like like traveling or moving. I know moving for me was really helped me with my grief enormously. Once I left the family apartment that Michael and I lived in together where I saw him in every corner and the dog waited in the foyer for him to come home and, and the couch where he was sick and that moving was a huge cue that gave me my own space. So, but snap out of it? I, I don't think it's a snap out of. No, I'm going to go no with that. I, I don't. I think it's a growth. And again, and then it's what you want to initiate. Everyone said to me, I laugh about this. You know, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're selling your apartment. Widow's never supposed to do that. Don't do that in this first six months. It's rushing, rushing, rushing. Are you dating? So wait, I shouldn't sell my apartment, but I should date. I didn't quite understand right, that breath right. of comment. Oh, like, wow. It's okay to go on a date after two months or three months or six months, but don't sell the apartment. I didn't subscribe to that. I didn't date till well after a year, and I sold the apartment right away, and it seemed to work for me. So I, I don't think there's a snap out. I think it's about you doing what's best for you and growing. A, a lot of men that I dated dated very shortly after their wives died. They had grieved. They had Their wives had long illnesses. They had grieved at the, you know, while their wives were in their illness, and that worked for them. I don't think it made anybody snap out of anything, but that's what worked for them. They grew past it and learned to carry it in a different pocket, but I don't think there's a magic snap. Well, part of that question had to do with people that I have known in the past that were suffering terribly you know, their life was over, their life was over, and the minute somebody from the opposite sex gave them a wink or flirted, all of a sudden their life changed. And yet, yes, they still missed the partner, they still felt very bad, but you never heard them, you know, uh, uh, talk about their loss as much, and they had a smile on their face. But you know what, it took them something to get to that point. They had to make up their mind that they wanted to start dating. They wanted to start relationships. So it's not like, you know, they were in the depths of despair, walking down the street, and then a man winked at them, and now they're better. That's not the case. That's not how the mind works. So they worked 
toward getting out in the world and changing their situation. Also, the one thing that you brought up earlier about loneliness. Loneliness makes you spin into a place you don't want to be, or probably. So mm-hmm. when you take loneliness out of the equation, and that's usually by the company of other people, and for some women it's men, men, women, or, or what same sex, whatever it is, that's a huge piece of the equation that causes you to be in despair, is loneliness. So it's a double-edged sword there. There's so many factors at work. Once they decided they did want a date, they did want the company of someone else, they were ready to move forward. So that was a, a, a process. It wasn't one wink, one phone call. And then it was doing away with the loneliness that caused them to be grieving and sad. So it's multifaceted. And I think that people think that, oh, she found a man and now she's happy. I think there was a lot more growth to her. Or he found a woman and his, he's just, he doesn't miss his wife anymore. I don't think that's true. <laughs> they just learn to recompartmentalize things and shift things around in their brain. We are top of the food chain, although AI is, I think, now. But we've right. always been top of the food chain. And our brain knows how to accommodate and change and and morph. And I think that it's all a development. And sometimes we don't give grieving people the credit of the growth it takes to get to a point. We just do snap judgments particularly people on the outside who only see what they see. And that's very unfair. That person has struggled and grown and worked at themselves far more than you know. But you see they're happy because now they're dating. That's probably not it. They had to grow to get there. And they may have had a lot of frogs to kiss before they found their prince. So I think people make unfair snap judgments. And they shouldn't. Is there a secret remedy for recovery? Positivity, half full, living your best life, trying to be the best you you can be, self-actualizing, mm-hmm. all all fundamentally in the same box. But I think recovery is based on you being happy with you. Can you be happy? Are you happy with yourself? I think being happy with yourself is fundamental in recovery. That's, that's a whole other topic. You're 100%. Right. A lot of us spend a lot of time being a partner. Some of us are whole, you know, most of our lives. And then you're not a partner anymore. And there you are, stripped naked with you. Do you like you? Do you like what you see in the mirror? You got to learn to. Because you'll only truly be happy when that person makes you happy. I think. Hmm. Do people change their lives after loss? Some people do. If you decide you don't want to mirror what you had. I'm one of those people that decided that they didn't want to embark on the same journey. So I made some changes that were somewhat significant to me. And I think they're healthier. I think, as I said, moving, finding a new apartment was wonderful for for getting rid of ghosts. Ghosts are really scary. Uh And they leave you in a place that you can't get out of. They lock you in that room. And I didn't want to be locked there anymore. So I think that change, making change, and it doesn't have to be drastic. It doesn't have to move if you don't want to move. Maybe it's redecorating. Maybe it's redecorating your bedroom. Maybe it's joining new groups. Maybe it's taking up a new hobby. You know, lots of things that fill a void. You have a void. There's no doubt loss is a void, and you need to fill it. So to find positive ways to fill it, the hobbies, sports, people, new interests, write a book. Never say never, never say always. <laughs> it will fill that void. And that's, I think, a healthier place to be. So I think if you're going to 
work through your loss, you're best off making some changes. There are people that I have met over the years that they've had their partner, their spouse's clothes, uh, objects, everything, mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. in the same place as if they were yep. alive. It could be two, three years later. They just... It could be five, ten. Yeah, yep. it, yeah they, so my thoughts were either they were, uh, they just couldn't do it because it was too hurtful or they were just lazy. I could never understand. No, which or some people, you're about. leaving out the third, which is okay. the, the one that you would gain through sensitivity is because it comforts them. Hmm. And I've had several friends that I've encouraged to divest and they have, they've listened to me and they've told me how much better it is since they did it. Sometimes they just need, people just need encouragement. I think that, I think it's less often the comfort. I think it's more often that you get frozen, stuck, and you think it's disrespectful to disregard, to disregard. That's a big word, to, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. And I think when someone else in your situation encourages you to do it, it really helps or offers to help you or tells you resources to get rid of things. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that, um, but it's not doing it because they want to. Yeah. yeah it's, it's not disrespectful, disrespectful, no, but people, they see the disrespect. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of misguided, I think. And oftentimes another widow, particularly a widow, who says to you, it's not disrespectful. You just need to, to not live in the past. You can't live with ghosts. Well, and hate, it becomes yeah, but a much they hate those easier. words. They, yeah, they just, yeah, they have guilt or disrespect, or they feel it's disrespectful. They, you know, mm -hmm. they lived a long life with that person. They just mm -hmm. don't want, you know, they may want to move forward but they don't want to you know you know forget the disrespect yeah, yeah right, but but right. keeping their clothes or their cosmetics is not disrespecting them right give them to someone else who can use them it's not doing any good hanging in a closet right so that's not disrespecting them keeping their memory alive remembering them with a smile on your face recalling anecdotes with friends and family that's respect it's not disrespectful to take their clothes away or their cosmetics. Susan, should should people spend time with other people who have similar troubles? I mean, how does that work? There are, I, I tried going to a few groups after Michael died, and it was the most negativity I've ever felt in a room. So that didn't work for me, but it does work for other people. It really was a detriment. I, I left there and said, "Wow, I mean, this is not my this is not my jam. This is not my thing." But I have said, and I have for the most part dated widows, because I feel there's a mutual respect and understanding. Because we're not angry with anyone. We don't want to toss anybody in the garbage. We don't want to throw them out. We don't want to beat them up. We we want those people that we lost to be respected. We go back to the respect thing. And I think widows and widowers respect each other's partners because they know what's involved. And, you know, I, I'll even tell you, Arthur accidentally called me his wife's name a couple of weeks ago. And he was horrified. I said, why are you horrified? It's, it's actually flattering. You, you know, you right. didn't hurt me. It was, it was an accident and it wasn't hurtful. So I think that, that in that regard, yes, we sat at a table with um, four of us, two couples, and there were four widows, all in their early 60s. And there were so many anecdotes that threw around the table that were kind and funny and and they under, everybody understands each other. Everybody understands where they're coming from. So in that regard, I tend to favor dating widowers. Um, in the regard of bereavement groups and things like that, that didn't work for me, but does work for other people. So I think it's all personal. 
Yet there are some people that would be sitting with you and they would look around the table and look at everybody. Even if they were accomplished, gorgeous folks, they would say, how did I get in this group? Oh, my God, I want to turn the clock back. You can't do that. When you get to that point, you realize that that's not realistic. Mm-hmm. I know, and I've said this before, that fortunately in my orbit, um, I'm really the only widow or widower amongst my friends, close friends and family. And I hope to be there for a very long time for everybody's mm-hmm. sake. But I know how differently I will treat them um, in some regards when they are in the same boat because I have a sensitivity to it that other people don't. Right. You know, the reaching out when they don't necessarily um, cry out and just being there, the invitations that you don't let lag because you think they're okay, they really still need you. Um, Just picking up the phone and just saying, how are you? You know, like, talk to me. Tell me what's doing. Or or on a a holiday or a birthday, not, not saying happy Mother's Day to someone who's lost a child, just saying, send a heart. Because there's no, you know, when you lose your child, there's not really a happy Mother's Day for the rest of your life. Right. Send the heart, you know, that's all you need to do. How's today going? You know, I know to do those things. It's just different, you know. Life lessons. Yeah. So, um, I know we discussed this, but I don't know really what you could say about this, but um, are there any positive predictions that you could make about the future for people that find themselves. Yes. Know. Yes. And this is the theme of my book that, that yes, you're in pain and yes, it's horrible, but there's a silver lining in that you can experience new things. You can grow, you can change, you have choices and you miss that person desperately, friend, parent, but you can pick up a surrogate mother. I'm now really close to a 93-year-old mother of my sister-in-law who has enriched my life because I lost my mother and my mother-in-law. It's not the same, but I've gained so much from her. And I've met new men, and I've learned how to be looked at by new men and touched by new men and made love to by other men. Wouldn't have happened if I stayed married. Not that I wouldn't want to stay married, but if I can't, I get new choices and new excitement and new things to experience. So look at this in that, yes, you've lost and it's devastating, but there's so much excitement and newness and and a whole world out there for you to enjoy. Kind of getting a mulligan, like in golf. You get a do-over. Do-over. What do you think Michael would say from the words you just said, hearing you? I, I thought about this a lot. And Michael called me by a pet name that I always refer to. I don't say what it is. If you know, you know. But he'd say... Blank, good for you. I like who you are. Good for you. Mm -hmm. Wow. All I could say is that this podcast has really been, uh, I think, I think so therapeutic for so many people for so many reasons that God bless you. That's all I could say. I mean, I'm listening. I think that you've dug deep into my heart, Lois. You've, you ask the questions, you bring me to the wall sometimes and things that I don't necessarily think I want to talk about. And you've dug deep on this. And I hope that by me digging deep and kind of opening my wounds to people and what is therapeutic for me, it's therapeutic for them and hopefully closes their wounds. 
Well, I can't wait for the book, and let's just tell the people that are listening that it's going to be here earlier than we thought. Early fall, early fall. Early fall. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. This book is coming out, and Susan and I are going to have a whole bunch of things that we have to do once this thing really becomes, you know, in print, (laughs) uh, you know, email and audio book. It's going to be a real object, so... Yep. So our journey starts again, but this has been wonderful, Susan. Thank you very, thank you. very much. Lois, I just want to mention for any of my listeners, so my website is SusanSWarner.com, and there is a contact page. And if there's questions or problems or issues or anything that you want us to discuss or that you're interested in, let me know. I'm easily reachable, SusanSWarner.com, and you can find me and send me a message. Love to hear from you. Yes, and it's on It's on the uh podcast too so we'll make sure that it's yeah. everywhere thank you exactly okay Thanks, talk to you later bye-bye now